Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is Morteza Hajizadeh, your host from Critical Theory Channel, and today I'm honored to be speaking to Dr. Andrew Casper. Uh, Dr. Andrew Casper is an Associate Professor of Art History in the Department of Arts at Miami University, and he's here to talk to us about his book, An Artful Relic, The Shroud of Turin in Baroque Italy, published by Penn State University Press in 2021. Andrew, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you. It's really great to be here. And I have an update. I've actually been promoted to full professor now. Wow, so I have a that's new great. <laughs> so we should ask your university to update your webpage. Yeah, yeah. Well, it goes in effect in a couple months. So yeah. Cool. Cool. Well, congratulations. Uh, can you tell us a little about yourself as Andrew? How did you become interested in history of arts in general, and especially Baroque Italy. Tell us a little about yourself, your background, and then about the book. How, how, how did the idea of this book come about? Yeah, so my area of specialization is in, um, generally speaking, early modern Italy, but in particular, religious imagery um, of the Counter-Reformation and early Baroque period. Um, and so I've always been interested in sort of the role of religious images uh, from a devotional point of view, from a cultural point of view, also from an artistic point of view. And um, it actually kind of suddenly occurred to me that this interest in um, religious imagery of the early modern period actually could meld quite nicely with what has been a lifelong interest in the Shroud of Turin. I'm I've been around, you know, long enough that the Shroud of Turin has underwent um, quite an interesting sort of modern history. And I first became interested in the Shroud when I was about nine years old, and it was um, subjected to carbon dating. And that's when it really kind of burst onto the scene from an international media point of view. And uh, I was, like I said, about nine years old when that happened. And it wasn't until I was in graduate school when I kind of realized that there's actually a relevance between the Shroud of Turin as a religious image and my field of art history. And uh, this project basically started when I was in graduate school, but I didn't really get to work on it as a book project until it was about 2010 uh, when I traveled to Turin for the first time. 
and got to see the Shroud of Turin. It was during one of the very infrequent um, public exhibitions of the Shroud. Um, and then over the course of the next, you know, 10 or, you know, yeah, 10 or so years, um, I started doing research in the archives. And what I uncovered was that there is, in fact, an art historical re relevance to the Shroud of Turin that hasn't really been talked about at all um, in any of the existing literature. It's fascinating. So it has been an obsession since you were like nine years old, right? <laughs> Yeah, very much so. Very much so. And I, I could say I'm not a religious person. Um, and the, the whole debates about whether or not it's real or not, which is really a matter of religious faith, is not what interests me. To, and I'm one of the few people that um, is not motivated by answering the question, is it real or is it not? I'm looking at it from a um, from the perspective of an, of an historian um, and a religious historian, but also in particular as an art historian. Mm. So let's... Uh... Uh, let, let's let's just define. Let I me mean, describe this to our listeners. I'm sure many people are not familiar with this. So the, your book deals with Shroud of Turin. So what is it? And and it's one of the most famous and even controversial Christian objects. So can you tell us what this is and why is it a sort of a controversial object in um, for for Christians? I mean, sure. an art yes. as an art for uh, relic. Yeah, well, the Shroud of Turin just basically as an object is a 14 foot sheet of linen on which appear these ghostly impressions of both the front and back of a dead crucified body and then contains stains of blood from that body. And from a religious perspective, this is believed to be perhaps um, one of the burial claws used uh, to prepare Jesus Christ's body for the entombment. Um, and there are a couple of theories about how this cloth might have been used. Uh, one of the more prominent ones is that uh, when the body was taken down from the cross, um, the sheet, which is now the Shroud of Turin, was laid out underneath and then wrapped above the body. So you get this double body imprint on it. And it's controversial simply because, I mean, anytime you have something that, you know, for believers proves not only the existence of Jesus Christ, but also, um, verifies the accounts of his passion and his death as told in the Bible, this of course is going to become something that is going to you know spark the interest not just of believers but also unbelievers as well. So it's you know it's controversy very much is you know whether or not it can be the kind of bona fide proof um, for um, you know for what the Bible says about what happened in the last days or the last moments um, of Jesus Christ's time here on earth. And, uh, and of course, as anyone who knows the Shroud of Turin probably knows that a large part of its controversy does in fact stem from the carbon dating that occurred in 1988, and then the questions about the validity of the carbon dating. The carbon dating itself, as it was conducted, concluded that the cloth cannot possibly be old enough to date all the way back to the time of Christ. But then there've been a lot of controversy about whether the procedures used in the carbon dating have been valid, whether the sampling from the cloth um, was in fact from the original shroud instead of a kind of an addition to the cloth that was interwoven into it. A lot of controversy. It just really is such a hot top, hot, uh, hot button topic um, because it really does become something that someone's faith could potentially hinge on. Well, I can understand now where, where the controversies are coming from. Um, so um, as, a, as, a, as one of the most famous art objects, I'm sure there have been a lot of books about it. So what is particularly different in your book? How do you approach this topic differently? And also tell us about the, the way you, you went about researching this book. Sure. 
Yeah, so I think one thing that really distinguishes my book from the vast majority of those that do exist on the Shroud is that, first of all, mine does not engage the question of whether or not it is real. That is a completely separate issue that I do not tackle at all in any, in any way in my book. Um, and secondly, it, it looks at it strictly from an historical point of view, meaning what interests me about the Shroud of Turin, regardless what me or anyone else believes about its authenticity, what really interests me is this period in its own history where it really emerged onto the scene uh, of Christian devotion as the preeminent Christian artifact. And, um, and this is not in itself unknown you know, information. I mean, scholars and historians have been aware of the Shroud of Turin, but it typically is kind of dismissed as something that's largely irrelevant from an historical point of view. And I became aware, again, starting in graduate school, as I started to explore sort of its role as a religious image and sort of when it, you know, uh, when it kind of really burst onto the scene in the late 1570s, it became very clear to me that this was a major a religious object that um, was whose whose authenticity was not doubted. Um, you know, as many people doubt its authenticity today, that way of believing or thinking about whether or not it's real is kind of irrelevant to the fact that for much of its history there were not widespread doubts. Or, of course, other er other periods of its history where it was doubted, but the period I'm looking at uh, from the late 1500s into the 1600s, it was largely believed and promoted to be the real, authentic burial cloth of Jesus Christ. Whether we today agree with that is an irrelevant question. And I think, you know, one of the things I'm trying to promote through this book is the idea that let's leave aside the sort of question of authenticity as, it, as interesting as that is for certain people, as problematic as it is for certain people, um, focusing too much on that kind of deflects attention away from the fact that culturally speaking, this has been a very, very major, um, uh, you know, a religious artifact uh, for, uh, for Christianity. And so we shouldn't be sort of, we shouldn't dismiss it because you might think it's not real, right? Um, and so that's sort of where my book is coming from. And the way I went about exploring this then uh, was I had to ask the major question, the kind of overriding question that uh, motivated my research into this, um, into the shroud that eventually became my book. The overarching question was, what is it that people believed in it? Because I couldn't really question the fact that they believed it to be real. That was by and large a you know foregone conclusion for the vast majority of Christians in the, in the period that I'm looking at. But I wanted to know how is it functioning as a religious image? As an art historian, you know, I focus on the role that images play in the devotional lives and the religious lives of Christians in this in this early modern period. Well, what role does the shroud play? And so one of the things that I had to overcome was the very fact that for many people, the Shroud of Turin, just as an object, is irrelevant to art history. Because by no stretch of the imagination, whether you are on the side of believing it's real or not, it's by no means a conventional work of art, so to speak, right? Um, you know, when I, as an art historian, I typically look at objects that are you know, manufactured by a human man, by human hands, where there's the name of an artist associated with it. We can uncover the methods and the procedures by which, you know, paintings are made. Like those are kind of standard things that art historians look at in addition to the kind of functional, um, 
components of the of the objects we study. But with the Shroud of Turin, you know, it's very different than like a painting by Leonardo da Vinci or a painting by Michelangelo, because um, there's no author to be attached to it, right? And even if someone believes that it is a manufactured object, we still don't have a name associated with it. So I had to overcome the kind of the initial fear that this as an object was just sort of not available to be studied from an artistic point of view. Well, the more I explored it, and I explored this thing by going to Turin many times over the course of a decade, um, I dove into the archival materials that exist, um, you know, manuscripts and uh, uh, published, uh, uh, published treatises, um, and various sorts of materials that kind of give us a clear sense of, you know, what the Shroud of Turin was for people at this time. And what surprised me, in fact, was that the way that the Shroud of Turin was described starting in the 15, late 1500s and through the 1600s was, in fact, as a work of art, but not as a work of art in the sense that, therefore, it's a fake manufactured human crafted object, but they saw it as a divine work of art crafted by God. And when describing its sort of artistry in that regard, um, they, you know, many people were describing it as something that God painted and God used sort of Christ's blood as the pigment. And they even engaged some of the theoretical components of art making that all art historians of the Renaissance, late Renaissance and Baroque period know. But they, you know, like the theories about, you know, color and theories about design and design and all these kinds of things, all of a sudden those ideas that generate from the history of art are now being applied to the Shroud of Turin, but not to argue that it's a work of art, but to argue that it's a divine painting. And therefore, that's what generated the sort of the title of my book, An Artful Relic. It is both a relic in cloth that, you know, for believers came in direct contact with the body of Jesus Christ. Also, that it absorbed, you know, his blood that was discharged from his wound. So it's a relic in that regard, but an artful relic because it was seen to be crafted by God as a divine work of art. So uh, one of the most important aspects of a book, as you have already mentioned, is to avoid the question of authenticity altogether, whether it's real or not real. And I'm sure when it comes to such an important art relic, uh, that's the first thing that pops up in anybody's mind, whether they come from a religious background or even if they are art historians. But how, how can it be done? And why do you think we should completely avoid that? And how? Well, it's not so much that we should avoid the question of authenticity, but it's more that we should set aside our current contemporary notions of what counts as authentic and what doesn't. Because one of the major takeaways from this book is that the way in which we today kind of completely separate authenticity from artistry or authenticity from artfulness is not the way that people back in the early modern period that I'm looking at thought about these issues. And so again, like when I'm talking about an artful relic, I'm saying it's conceptualized as somehow both an authentic relic. This authenticity is never questioned but these ideas of artistry can actually be used not to argue against authenticity, but actually reinforce it. Because if you, the whole, what changes therefore is not the notion of whether the whether the shroud of Turin is artfully crafted, but who's responsible for crafting it. Today, if you're to say the shroud of Turin is an artificial object, what we mean is that it's a fake relic, right? That it was manufactured by human means, either 
innocently to sort of just be a representation of the idea of the Shroud of Turin or fraudulently in, you know, in an effort to actually convince people that this thing is the thing that it only purports to be. Um, and that strict separation, that kind of polarization is one of the major things that is a feature of our sort of paradigms of belief, but are not, does not really reflect the way that uh, the audiences in the late 1500s and through the 1600s thought about this. So, you know, again, the question of authenticity, it's not that I'm disregarding the question entirely, it's that I'm asking us to consider that authenticity can be thought of in a very different way than what it typically is today, if that makes sense. Yeah, and uh, in your book, you talk about Shroud of, how Shroud of Turin was understood in that period. So can you tell us how did viewers see it, use it, or even understood it back then? Yeah, so again, uh, you know, it, because it was an object that was believed to have come in direct contact with the d dead body of Christ, that by itself already would earn it um, the prestige of being what we call a secondary relic, you know, in the kind of scope of religious objects and sacred objects throughout Christianity, um, you know, relics are like physical, tangible proof of of the existence of holy figures and primary relics would be, you know, like pieces of a holy person's body, like the arm bone of a saint or even the whole body of a saint or the head of a saint. And these are standard throughout the Christian world, going back to the early medieval period. Um, and then secondary relics would be, you know, objects that aren't the actual physical remains of a holy figure, but objects that came in direct contact with them. Now, the Shroud of Turin is unique because it kind of combines both a secondary and a primary relic um, because it is an object that came in direct contact with Christ's body, but then also by virtue of absorbing his blood and also whatever other bodily fluids, um, you know, became sort of a piece of the body. And that's incredibly rare for Jesus Christ because uh, as any Christian knows or anyone who's familiar with Christianity knows, um, Jesus Christ's body in its entirety resurrected up into heaven. So he didn't leave behind, you know, bodily relics in the same way that other saints did. So the Shroud of Turin is already thought of as this incredibly prestigious object because not only is it a sort of some, an object that came in direct contact with his body, but it actually contains traces of his body as well. So that's kind of the way that people first thought about it. But then the added thing, besides the sort of contact and besides the traces of blood and whatever body, bodily fluids might be there, the fact that it also is a miraculous image uh, where the body um, of Jesus, when it came in contact with the cloth, by some mystery, by some miracle, you know, uh, you know, sort of transferred that body image to the surface of the cloth. So you see an actual visible record of Christ's body. So that gives it an added dimension uh, that really kind of rises it uh, quite high above um, you know, the other kinds of religious objects that existed in that day. And so the belief um, in the period I'm looking at, and really going back, you know, throughout its known history, is when one encounters the Shroud of Turin, you're basically encountering Jesus Christ himself. And it's for this reason that the Shroud of Turin was exhibited publicly throughout its known history. It was shown to pilgrims on a regular basis. Um, and this especially took hold 
in the late 1500s. So the period that I'm looking at, the very sort of initial sort of history, micro history that I'm looking at for the Shroud is when the Shroud arrived in the city of Turin. And that was, that was in the year 1578. Prior to that, it was in Southern France and various locations uh, just before arriving in Turin is in the town called Chambéry. And that was the seat of power of the Savoy family, the dynastic Savoy family that owned the relics since the mid 1400s. Well, the Savoy transferred their capital from Chambéry to Turin in 1563. And then in 1578, they transferred the Shroud over to Turin. And then from that moment becomes the Shroud of Turin. Well, in 1578, it was uh, taken to Turin uh, to uh, basically because there was a, uh, a cardinal archbishop of Milan who at the time was uh, wanting to give thanks for having survived the plague that ravaged northern Italy in the mid-1570s. And he wrote to the Savoy Duke and said, I would like to come and worship the Shroud of Turin. And the Savoy Duke basically said, I'll tell you what, we just moved our capital. We'll um, move the Shroud to Turin, which is roughly halfway between Milan and Chambéry. So it kind of saved the Card- uh, Cardinal Charles Borromeo half the, half the journey. Well, when Borromeo went to Turin in 1578, they also exhibited the Shroud publicly on two occasions within two days of each other um, to what was a reported um, audience of about you know 40 or so thousand pilgrims who flocked to Turin and that sparked this industry of regular public exhibitions of the shroud to tens of thousands of pilgrims nearly every year not quite every year but nearly every year from the late 1570s through the 1600s and so these pilgrims are flocking to the city of Turin uh, and they see the shroud is displayed publicly and they're all clamoring to try to catch a glimpse of the images of Christ's body and the traces of blood. And the reason why this was such a big deal is because by virtue of it being a cloth that came in contact with the body, containing traces of the body and conveying an image of the body, it really was a surrogate for actually witnessing Jesus Christ with your own two eyes. So you know, the belief around the shroud was very much that this is the closest that we can come, at least on earth, to being in, in the direct vicinity of Jesus Christ himself. Uh, there, there is this text in the book that I'd like you to kind of expand on that. Uh, not begotten, but made, makes a rather new argument about how ideas generated from Renaissance and Baroque theories of art informed understanding of Shroud of Turin as an artful relic. Can, can you explain this more, please? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm basically taking one of the lines from the Nicene Creed that refers to um, refers to Jesus, Jesus as begotten, not made, meaning that he is generated directly from God the Father, not crafted, but w- one with, you know, materially one with God the Father. And I sort of flip that concept as the title to the second chapter of my book as made, not begotten. Because of this burgeoning sort of way of understanding the Shroud of Turin, again, while while saying it's authentic, this is by no means saying that it's not a real relic, but at the time they're saying this is a made object, but it's the author of, you know, who did the making? It's God, you know, using sort of artistic techniques metaphorically, right? You know, this is all sort of in the realm of metaphor, but the way in which these treatises, these devotional manuals and these theological treatises and historical accounts of the shroud from the late 15 through the 1600s, um, they're very much regarding it as something that is crafted by God. 
Um, and so, you know, it becomes in, in that regard, a work of art or what, what I call an artful relic, you know, one that is sort of artificially crafted by God, but out of the very materials of Jesus Christ that spilled out of his body that soaked into the, uh, uh, to the frat fabric. So it becomes a kind of new, um, almost a new theology, um, of Jesus Christ that gets, um, stimulated by the shroud of Turin, you know, sort of taking that Nicene Creed statement about him being begotten, not made and like, well, no made not begotten not directly generated, but actually crafted the image of Jesus on the surface of the cloth. Um, I mean, quite literally, I mean, like, you know, there's treatises that talk about how Christ, you know, used or sort of God used paintbrushes and actually like, you know, drew the outlines of Christ's body or sort of sketched it in the way that, you know, uh, in the way that an artist, a regular run of the mill artist would, um, you know, you know, draft out a preliminary sketch in the preparatory stages for making a finished painting. All those ideas about the craft of painting in a very mundane way are then attributed to God acting as painter to make or craft or artificially produce the image of Christ on the surface of the shroud. Uh, and your, your third chapter, The Art of Resurrection, how did viewers reconcile the process of Christ's resurrection with the idea that the Shroud of Turin is a work of divine painting. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the, um, you know, one of the major obstacles I think that had to be overcome uh, when the Shroud kind of burst onto the scene in the late 1500s into the 1600s. Because uh, we have to remember that this is an era that any historian would know that uh, that's, that is the era of the, of the Counter-Reformation. This is, you know, after the Protestants, you know, made all their complaints about, you um, the improprieties and the fraudulent practices and the corruption of the church, and uh, which of course would lead to the split of the Christian church into the Protestants and the Catholics. And the Catholics, of course, have to account for the fact that there's a lot of you know finger pointing about um, various aspects of their belief. So they have to be very careful about um, about promoting any religious idea because like everything is now under further scrutiny. Well, um, I take a step backward a little bit. I'll get back to the core of your question in just one second. Um, you know, one of the things that was uh, questioned by the Protestants was the very validity of religious images, you know, uh, you know, because the existence of a religious image could be seen as a violation of God's commandment, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. And so the Protestants are already, to varying degrees of severity, are already kind of, you know what, maybe we should do away with images. Well, the Catholics are saying, no, you know what, images are too important to do away with. Um, without images, then it's harder or even impossible to tell the stories of the lives of Jesus Christ and other holy figures. Um, due to, you know, illiteracy, most people wouldn't be able to read the Bible, so they need to have images to serve as the Bible of the illiterate. Um, but also images as icons, um, you know, kind of provide the visual means by which one could access a holy figure. And so you can look at an icon and you kind of treat it in the same way, kind of like the discussion we're having right now. You know, we are now separated by how many thousands of miles, uh, you in Australia and me here, here in the United States, um, yet we're able to come in direct uh, communication with each other by the technology of our computer screens. Um, well, an icon's the same kind of thing. For Catholics, you're like, we understand that God said don't make images, but without these icons, we 
it's harder to imagine how we pray to these holy figures. So this is to say that the Shroud of Turin came into the scene um, at a moment where the Catholics are reinforcing religious images are really important. We hear the, the complaints of the Protestants, but we are reinforcing that they're too important to not have. Well, now you have something that purports to be the, um, the artful, so to speak, relic of the resurrected Jesus Christ. Well, theologically speaking, Jesus should not have left any bodily remains on earth. When he rose into heaven, he resurrected and then ascended into heaven, um, his whole body went with him. And so the promoters of the Shroud of Turin had to kind of overcome the fact or reconcile the fact that, um, uh, uh, you know, that that there was this sort of act of resurrection, and yet there also is this quote-unquote artfully crafted relic of his body left back on earth. And their solution was actually kind of ingenious in that they actually attributed the resurrection itself to a work of art making. And so the theology behind this is really complicated because it gets into all sorts of theologies of blood and, you know, whether Christ had, you know, you know, well, if he did leave blood behind on earth after, you know, it all got reabsorbed into his body and then the body went up to heaven. Um, well, which blood was left behind? You know, was it vital blood versus, you know, it's just it's sort of theories about blood. Um, and those are really complicated, but the way that the resurrection is described in these treatises on the Shroud of Turin, um, they basically say that um, essentially Christ shed all of his blood. Uh, it sort of, you know, exited his body, soaked into the shroud and seemingly would have soaked into the shroud in a kind of like, you know, abstract manner, right? Just kind of was this big blood stain. Well, at the moment of the resurrection, then Christ absorbed a good portion of his blood, but not all of it. And what was left behind was then left in the shape of his body. And so in that regard, the resurrection was like an act of like negative image making or reverse image making, however you want to say it, where instead of like applying pigment and adding pigment to create the image of a body, it was a subtractive method of removing pigment and what's left behind is in the shape of his body. Um, and so the third chapter, as you allude to, um, of my book is called The Art of Resurrection and the way in which the Shroud of Turin is kind of um, reconciled with these theologies of the resurrection of Jesus Christ's body. They sort of maintain this idea that it is an art, a divinely Art, artificial or divine work of art that God crafted. This for me was one of the, um, I think one of the most fun discoveries that I made. And you have to imagine, you you mentioned before, you asked me to describe what my process of research was like. I mean, I'm going to Turin, you know, every summer for a decade, uh, and then sometimes during the academic year as well. And I'm just, you know, getting all of these texts that were published in the, in the 15 and 1600s. And I'm just reading through page by page by page by page and page and just making note of whenever there's any reference to artfulness or artistry or processes of painting or what have you. Um, and I was not prepared at all to uncover and to kind of discover the fact that even the resurrection itself, like that act of the body sucking in back all the blood and then coming back to life would also be described as a artistic act, not just a kind of, you know, a, an act of revivification, but an artistic one at that. 
I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off and uh the final two chapters of the book you uh you talk about the uh, the, the, the different copies of maybe the, uh, the the shroud of turing and i guess again we come to the question of authenticity that you mentioned at the beginning so what do those copies tell us about how viewers understood the relationship between copy and original and how does it relate to the ways we understand um, uh, we understand them in those terms? Yeah. So the copies that um, I refer to in the in the fourth and fifth chapters of my book um, are of two forms. Um, some of these are like full size, two scale painted reproductions. I mean, I'm kind of at a loss for really what to call these. I I settle on copy, but um, reproduction is a kind of good way of thinking about it as well. Um, in which case artists are um, like painters are commissioned uh, to replicate the shroud by taking sheets of linen that are of the same dimension as the original and with pigment as opposed as opposed to the original these artists of these copies or replicas are using some really diluted wash to replicate the features of the image of Christ's body and also you know trying to sort of paint the sort of stains of blood and what have you um, and so these are kind of copies that more or less uh, resemble to the best degree they can make, um, you know, what the original looks like to full scale. The other set of copies then are actually smaller um, images that are made through um, technologies of printmaking. And, uh, and these, I think, are maybe less understood as according to the word copy, so to speak, um, but they're images that were mass produced on a printing press that again recreate the image of the body but often it's like an image of the cloth being shown being sort of spread aloft by um by theologians at one of these exhibitions and those usually were distributed to um to pilgrims who had traveled to turin during these yearly exhibitions and they could be taken home and then used as um devotional aids and those are a really interesting subset i think of of sort of artistic copies or artistic representations of the shroud the full-size paintings, though, are ones that really spark my interest um, because, again, they kind of force us to have to confront, I think, the fact that we think of copy and original differently now than what they did back then. Just like we might think of artifice and authenticity differently now than they did back then, copy and original is a similar thing. Because we, you know, if I were to ask you, um, you know, you know, hey, like that's, you know, a really great, I don't know if you have like some heirloom or something in your house, that's really great. And you were to tell me, oh, well, it's just a copy. It's like, oh, <laughs> right. We think of a copy as like a, 
a lower order, something less impressive, you know, something that is easily acquired. It doesn't have that aura of specialness often, right? And that goes for whether it's a copy that's an exact replica that you can't tell the difference or something that's like a cheap knockoff that you can immediately tell, you know, this is shoddily produced. It's very clearly not the real thing. We always, I shouldn't say always, but we very often, most often think of a copy as something as less desirable than the original. Well, with these copies, and again, these painted full-size replicas of the Shroud of Turin, they um, they didn't actually have that same distinction. Now, nobody's mistaking these copies for the original. It's really important to make that point. These are not copies that were passed off in any kind of deceptive or fraudulent way as the original Shroud. And the reason why we know that is because the vast majority of these copies actually have text, like an inscription appended, usually along the bottom, sometimes along the top, that basically says um, extractum ex originale, meaning extracted from the original, then often we give the year of manufacture. So we'll have the year, let's say 1646 or 1623 or what have you. Um, So you already know that the, the date of manufacture automatically disqualifies these copies from being regarded as the original, but they were regarded as still just as powerful and just as important as the original. And one of the reasons for that is because according to documents that we have, a large number, if not all of them, we don't know how many, but at least a large number of these copies, when the artist was done painting them, they actually took that copy and they had it pressed against the original shroud. And then when you'd peel the copy back, the idea was it somehow absorbed some originality or some power, some aura of specialness, some divinity, what have you, from that original. And so when you go, or when pilgrims at the time would go and see a copy of the Shroud of Turin, it really was in many regards seen as just as special of an occasion as if you were seeing the original. And again, even though these copies are not by any means understood as somehow a replacement for the original or, you know, a sort of deceptive, you know, um, you know, trying to pass itself, pass itself off as an original. And so again, you know, the idea of copy and original, like those categories of objects can in fact be much close, much more closely aligned for audiences back then than what we typically have today. Uh, you raise a lot of fascinating points, and I was reminded of uh, many, many things. Like I am interested in medieval history, and I've talked with some people about the idea of manuscripts and then this whole idea of authenticity that doesn't really matter because that manuscript was written by some scribes, so it's never, ever the original one. And I'm originally from Iran myself, and I remember when I was a kid, there were people who would go to some shrines in different cities in Iran. They would just have an ordinary piece of cloth. They would just rub it against the shrine, and they would bring it back home as a relic. And people who were religious, they didn't really care. They would just touch that as if it has this magic power. And another interesting thing to me was that about, it was, I guess, about 15 years ago. Again, I was back, I was in Iran back then. And I think it was around the time that one of the holy shrines in Iraq had, uh, there was a, there was an explosion, or I think there was this uh, terrorist bombing in a mosque, an important mosque in Iraq. And Iran decided to rebuild the shrine there. So it was in my hometown that artisans were building things. They were building kind of the shrine out of gold. It was in a workshop and people could see it. 
But the funny thing is that before that shrine was even made, so people would go and touch it, even before it was put into the mosque, they didn't really care about the idea of like original or a copy. It wasn't even a religious relic in the workshop. It was just being built. The people touched it and they would drop cloth or rosaries, kind of Muslim rosaries. Uh, uh, I think they call them rosary. I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's, it, to, to me, it was fascinating when you were talking about these ideas of original copy that came to my mind. Yeah. You know, and I think we are very, I mean, this is one of the major themes in a lot of the classes I teach at my university is that we are often too quick to dismiss, um, you know, authentic religious belief in exactly the regard that you're talking about or in the with regards to the way that people regarded copies of the Shroud of Turin, we dismiss these as like superstition or some sort of folklore that's not real. But like, these are important things. And, um, you know, I think when we look at how often there is a belief in um, the power of something that even if we, from our perspective today, in a very rationalist way, in a lot of ways, we kind of take the fun out of everything, right? Like we treat everything as like way too positivist, way too rational. And if it doesn't align with our kind of like, kind of rigid and sort of limited mode of understanding belief, then we kind of, you know, kind of dismiss it as, oh, that's just popular folklore, right? Um but I think it's really important to understand that uh, these are really important aspects of, I think, how we're wired as human beings. I really do believe that we are wired to um, to at least desire to believe that objects can be uh, laden with a power that maybe we don't understand, we can't see, we can't sense, we can't experience maybe directly. Um, and I do this myself, right? I mean, I know that I have, you know probably what even I would admit are kind of silly beliefs in, um, you know, certain objects I hold very dear, you know, why do we have photographs of loved ones on the mantles of our homes? If we didn't believe that maybe even though they might be just photographs, somehow the presence of our loved ones are there, you know, um, I think it's important to acknowledge that, um, you know, we as human beings often do, um, even against all, quote unquote, rational thought, we often do attribute like a sense of authenticity, originality, or even like divine, pardon me, divine or supernatural power to objects that um, we might be embarrassed to admit we treat in, in that kind of way. And these copies are so interesting too, if you don't mind me like, going off a little bit on a tangent. Um, because uh, I had a couple of experiences, and I actually talk about this in uh, in the the epilogue of my book, which is actually one of my favorite parts about my book, uh, is the final, I don't know, five or so pages, this epilogue, where I sort of revert to first person, which is not very often done in academic writing. And it's very reflective about my experience undergoing the research for this uh, for this book, which experiences that I'm going to have with me to the day I die. I mean, just the, 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 the process of researching this book and writing it was really just my life's passion. Um, but in particular, tracking down these copies, I was surprised how um, unimportant they are regarded today, knowing how important they were regarded back in the 15 and 1600s. And so, I mean, there were, you know, I was kind of laughed at, not really laughed at, but kind of, you know, I was dismissed as kind of a curiosity. Like, why is this American showing up in these remote churches in Italy asking to see these copies of the Shroud of Turin? And, you know, they oftentimes, you know, sometimes reluctantly, but 
um, more often with a sense of kind of amused curiosity, be like, sure, you want to see this? Fine, here it is. It's not that big of a deal. We don't really take much stock into it. Um, and, you know, they're, they're not really regarded as anything important. I think that's a major loss. You know, I think that's a product of today's, um, you know, kind of in, you know, whatever, some corners of Western culture where uh, you just have this overly rational belief in stuff. It's like, oh, well, that's just a copy. That's not that big of a deal. And I think it's a loss that we sort of are missing an opportunity to really understand humanity if we deny the fact that, well, at a different time and at a different place and with different people, these copies were actually regarded as um, uh, as quite a big deal. And one of the like one of the first times I got to see one of these copies like up close was in Bologna, in the Cathedral of Bologna. And I asked the priest to bring it down. He's like, "Sure, why not?" And um, and he rolled it out into a table. And I was as giddy as can be. I mean, I was to me this was like I am looking at an object that is laden with this sacred history, this religious belief, and uh, you know potentially could have had come in direct contact with the actual shroud. And I'll never get that close to the actual shroud. Nobody will. Um, but to me, this was a really, really, really big deal. And even the priest at the Cathedral of Bologna was just kind of you know like, oh yeah, it's nice. You know, was not nearly as excited about this object as. Um, you know, as this crazy redheaded American was who shows up unannounced. Um, so it's really interesting, like, you know, the differences, the way these copies are treated today versus how they were regarded back then. And uh, so why does the history of Shroud of Turin, uh, in the way you present, matter to us now in 21st century? Yeah, I think it's just really important. Um, you know, I, I'm really trying to sort of slice through um, what I think as, and I'm going to make some people mad, I'm sure, but what I see as kind of just a really tiresome, um, preoccupation with, you know, whether it's real or not. And again, I said this before, but I'm going to elaborate a little bit. Um, you know, if you were to look on, if you just look up the Shroud of Turin today, or for most people who know it in any kind of way, they just know it as this object of extreme controversy. And all sorts of, you know, examinations of the cloth and of its features and of its materials, all sorts of scientific analyses. Um, you know, we have to admit all sorts of pseudo-scientific analyses from both sides. Um, you know, that overwhelms things and it becomes an object where I feel like everything hinges on this question of whether or not it's real. And I frankly think, and this is where I'm going to maybe make other people mad, um, the people that think it's real, it's not nearly the slam dunk they think it is. The people that don't think it's real, it's not a slam dunk for them either. It's a really vexing thing. And so those studies and those examinations and the desire to want to prove it's real or not, like I get why we do that. Um, and I understand that there definitely is an interest and there's a usefulness to that as well. But if we are preoccupied just with that, we forget the fact that historically, no matter what conclusions we come to today, historically, this is a really major thing. And I think scholars have been kind of afraid to touch the Shroud of Turin. Um, like there's really kind of very little serious historical scholarship on the Shroud. There's been more in recent decades, in recent years, I should say. Um, and I have to acknowledge like one of the... Um, great precursors to my book uh, was a book by an art and architectural historian um, at the University of Iowa named uh, John Belden Scott, who wrote a book called Architecture for the Shroud, which is one of the first serious academic studies of the Shroud as 
a relic in the early modern period. And his book was all about the the architecture of the chapel spaces that were built to house the shroud and all of the constructions that were made and all the urbanistic um uh, developments of the city of Turin that were made to um, to facilitate all of these annual um, you know exhibitions that drove so many people to the city. Um, it really is less about the shroud itself and more about the kind of artistic or sorry the architectural and urbanistic um, context for it. Um, but that was a major, major, major work of scholarship that kind of provided the foundation for what I do. But a lot of scholars, I think, are kind of scared off because once you mention shroud of Turin, it's like you basically, you gain an audience and then you also lose an audience. And it depends about whether or not they think you're saying it's real or not. And I just want to say, listen, let's set aside those even for a moment. And let's just think about everyone together. Let's think about no matter if you think it's real, no matter if you think it's fake, look at how important this was and what it did and how people believed in it and the way in which they believed in it. Um, it's, it's, it's just something that I feel like as an historian, we learn something about ourselves by studying the objects that we hold dear. And I think the Shroud of Turin, as much attention as there is to it, there is comparatively very little attention to the roles that it's played across history in the lives of Christians and, and non-believers alike. And uh, just as you said, it's an important topic and also a controversial topic to write about. So how was your book received? Because you approach it quite differently from others. You just ask people to put aside this whole idea about its authenticity or not. So how was your book yeah. received after it was published? I think I was, in some regards, prepared for the different types of reception it would get and other kinds not prepared. Um, I'll say first, I'm incredibly honored and proud that it was um, given a major book award uh, by uh, within my field. It won the the Roland H. Baton Book Prize awarded um, from the 16th Century Society. Uh, it was awarded this prize for best book in in, in art and music history for uh, 2022. And um, I was, you know, you always dream that your book is going to win one of the major book prizes in your field. But you, know, I don't know if I really believe it would happen, but lo and behold, it did. And I'm just endlessly proud because what it signifies, frankly, is that somebody read it and somebody found it really important from an historical point of view. Now, what I have found, though, is, um, and I've been giving talks all over the all over the country, all over the world, actually. Um, I've been giving talks since the book has come out. Um, I've been spoken to, uh, in front of audiences of all sorts, and um, I'm grat- gratified that um, I can speak about the Shroud of Turin without ever making any statements about my belief on it, right? Like, it, 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 I've been able to talk about it from the perspective of, of, of history to audiences where, in fact, it doesn't matter whether or not I think it's real or not, and it doesn't matter if they think it's real or not. The core of my book is very much about, like, look how kind of really interesting this object is. What I've also found, though, and kind of frustratingly, is there are still people that are, um, I think... To, to, to put the, I think the, just to be very uh, blunt about it, it's very closed minded from both sides of this debate about authenticity. Um, you know, there are people that just don't want to acknowledge it as a relevant historical object, you know. Um, and in fact, I'll share like when I first got interested in the Shroud from my academic perspective in graduate school, um, I was taking a graduate seminar on early modern prints and engravings, kind of a standard like, you know, graduate seminar in art history. Um, this is at the University of Pennsylvania. 
And I was doing my seminar paper on early printed images of the Shroud of Turin. And there was a faculty member from one of the sciences at Penn who was sitting in on the seminar. And I don't really remember why, but he was there and whatever. And um, I remember I gave my seminar paper, you know, sort of at the end of the semester presentation to all of my classmates in the class. And, uh, and this guy just pipes up and he says, well, the shroud's not real. So nothing you said matters. And I was like, actually, that doesn't matter at all. Because even if we were to definitively prove it's not real, it dates to the 1200s, it's not the authentic, the fact of the matter is, in this period of time, it was believed to be the single most important tangible record of Jesus Christ. And I think that system of belief is still valid no matter where you find on the um, uh, on the spectrum. You also find, like if you look up my book on Amazon, for example, there's uh, some pretty cranky reviews about people that are attributing things to me that I don't actually say, right? Like people are saying, oh, he's coming off as very, very anti-authenticity. I'm like, I say very distinctly multiple times in my introduction, I am not engaging authenticity. So I think like one of the things I found is people will make assumptions. And I've seen online, I've seen in the comments of other podcasts I've given, people from both sides jump to conclusions. I've been accused of being, you know, someone who's promoting lies because I'm saying the shroud is real, which I'm not. I've been accused of... Um, of uh, being a, a heathen non-believer because I say the Shroud of Turn is not real, which I also don't do. And so, you know, I think people are just, there's this sort of knee-jerk reaction to something as controversial as this. And like, I just want to tell people, just read the book, you know, not just because I want the royalties and you should buy it, but like, just read the books. I think we'll learn something. You don't have to like it. No one has to be interested in its history, but I think it's just there's such a black and white polarization that effect, that that happens with something as controversial as this. And I've been very surprised, frankly, how resistant people are to thinking about it from an historical perspective. So my plea to everyone listening is think about it from a historical perspective and read my book with that in mind and not about is this contributing more or less to your understanding about authenticity. I think such, such kind of uh, knee-jerk reactions, as you mentioned, are quite common these days on social media. People just quickly dismiss something without even yeah. reading yeah, it Twitter and make assumptions. Yeah, Twitter has both a blessing and a curse yeah. with promoting yeah. my book. Right? Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah it, it's reactions. I'm used to it now, but it, it is frustrating, especially when you get like reviews on Amazon where it's like, I don't say that. And someone's giving me this nasty review. I'm like, I don't, or they'll still pick apart one phrase out of the context of my introduction and, you know, read the introduction. Like I do say, I understand there are rampant debates about authenticity. I hold those at arm's length. They do not matter. This book does not declare one way or the other, but people just will believe something else. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, before we come to the end of this uh, conversation, is there any other project you're currently working on? Yeah, actually a couple. Um, you know, people are always asking, this is my second book, and especially now that I've published two, and now that I'm promoted to full professor, there's no farther up you can go. People are asking, what are you going to do now? And, um, and you know, this has been such a life's passion that um, I really never went into academia thinking I was going to do anything but this book. And the fact that I had a book before this, which was my dissertation, and then this one, it's like, I've, I've accomplished everything I've wanted to accomplish. Um, but I am working on something um, that is 
ending up being kind of Shroud of Turin adjacent. Um, I'm looking at um, artistic, like actual conventionally artistic depictions of the body of the dead Christ um, in the late 1500s, and in particular in the city of Bologna. And I'm looking at certain paintings that show the dead Christ, like the lamentation or, you know, the the deposition from the cross or the entombment, where the body of Christ looks emphatically dead, very different from like your typical Renaissance understanding of the way in which artists typically would idealize Christ's body, even in death, they'd make it look very vital and athletic and, um, you know, almost like he's just resting, like sleeping, taking a nap instead of actually dead. And there's a couple of paintings, one in particular that is, uh, I mean, it's a cadaver. It's a depiction of Christ's dead body as this graying, um, you know, emaciated, you know, cadaver. And I'm looking at why did that come about? And um, and there is actually a strand of this. I don't want to reveal too much on here because I still haven't worked out all of the details yet, but there's a strand that suggests that maybe one of the ways of thinking about the dead body of Christ by artists in the city of Bologna in the late 1500s is by knowledge of the Shroud of Turin. Because we actually know that the Shroud of Turin was exhibited in uh, 1578 and then also in 1582. And in the year 1582, the Archbishop of Bologna goes to Turin to worship the Shroud and he comes back apparently with a copy of the Shroud. And and the city of Bologna kind of emerges as almost like a satellite um, Shroud of Turin um, uh, sort of a place of shot of shot of Turin enthusiasm outside of the city of Turin itself, and so I think there's this sort of knowledge of the shroud in Bologna at this time that uh, we haven't quite fully recognized yet as art historians and as historians. So, um, so that's one. And there's other a couple other like sort of side hustles I'm looking at, um, like miracle working images, kind of all within my overall interest in um, religious imagery of the early modern period. We'll see. I don't know if another book will come out or not, but uh, but we'll see. Uh, Thank you very much, Andrew, for taking the time to talk with us about Shroud of Turin on New Books Network. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a great honor, and I wish you all the best of luck as you move forward. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.